What happens when an outdoor enthusiast and evolutionary ecologist experiences Lyme and other tick-borne illnesses firsthand? Well, naturally, she dives into the peer-reviewed research and writes a book about it. And then she joins the board of the Canadian Lyme Disease Foundation. Dr. Shelley Ball is an evolutionary ecologist, a fellow of the Royal Canadian Geographical Society, and she participated in the inaugural Homeward Bound Women in Science Expedition to Antarctica in 2016. We reached her in Westport, Ontario. Welcome to our Looking at Lyme podcast, Dr. Ball. Uh, hi, Sarah. Thanks so much for having me. I really, really appreciate the opportunity to, to chat with you. How did you become involved with Lyme disease? Uh, unfortunately, I became uh, involved with Lyme disease as a uh, person suffering from Lyme and other tick-borne illnesses. Uh, wasn't a choice, <laughs> um, but uh, it found me. And, um, you know, so I, I'm a former research scientist and a university professor and, and, you know, kind of a knowledge sponge. And, and I think my way of dealing with uh, problems is just to gain as much knowledge on a topic as possible. And, and as I have learned, the, the unfortunately, uh, unfortunate and very hard way with Lyme is that um, you need to self-educate and do your research because we don't get the help from our, uh, you know, public healthcare system that we we need. So you very much have to self-educate and become a very vocal advocate for your care. Yeah, I have a copy of your book. Um, they the publisher sent me a copy from Firefly Books, and your the title of the book is Lyme Disease Ticks and You. And I must say, I was quite amazed that you pulled this book together in the amount of time you did, um, because I've been <laughs> sick a lot longer than you, and I could have never pulled anything like this off. Um, well, but, I think it's pure determination, right? <laughs> well, I think it's really valuable, though, to have the scientific perspective and a Canadian scientific perspective. So why right. did you decide to put your time into writing this book? A really good question. And, and you know, I honestly, I think it really comes down to uh, I just desperately want to help people because I'll be honest, I have been to hell and back with Lyme disease and I and two other tick-borne illnesses, as well as mold infections. And and I continue to. I mean, we know that treating Lyme, especially those of us in chronic Lyme, is a very, very, very long marathon, not a sprint. Um, and, uh, you know, as a research scientist, you know, as I said, I'm just a knowledge sponge and I want to know, I want to solve problems. Right. And so because of my science background, you know, I, I'm not a Lyme researcher, you know, I am an evolutionary ecologist and population geneticist, but, you know, I, as a scientist, I have the ability to read, um, the peer reviewed science papers that are out there and to read them from a very critical eye. And so, you know, it was just natural for me to delve into the, the scientific literature and, and learn as much as I possibly could. And, and unfortunately, um, you know, I, I found that I had to uh, literally turn to uh, the current scientific literature in order to get treatment. Uh, I have a wonderful GP. Uh, I really respect her. She's excellent. Um, but I really had to fight for a Lyme diagnosis. And, and uh, because uh, as we sadly, you know, many of us with Lyme know that you get negative Lyme tests and then your doctor says, well, I don't have Lyme. And you know, I think on my third appointment, I walked into her office with about uh, a 12-inch stack of printouts of peer-reviewed science 
articles and said, here's why I can have Lyme disease, but the test is negative. And, and she was great. We sat down and we had a, you know, heart to heart conversation. And she said, well, you know, let me test you for other things to rule them out. But I said, fine, but just give me some doxycycline. And, and uh, she gave me as much as she possibly could as a, as a GP. Yeah, I mean, that's so, that's such an interesting observation. I mean, this dialogue between science and medicine is ongoing. And sometimes uh, people are speaking different languages. Absolutely. I, I think that's actually a really great way to put it. And, and, you know, kind of coming back to why I wrote the book, that's basically why I wrote it was because, you know, there are some fabulous books about Lyme disease out there. And, and you know, I've been gobbling those up and, and reading them and rereading them and rereading them, right? Because you, you you know, they're big books and you get something different out of them each time. But um, as a science communicator, I something that I'm really big on is how do we take science, especially complex science, because Lyme is complex, right? Um, and, and, you know, science is still learning new things about it. So how do we take that and how do we boil it down into a way that the general public can understand it and consume it? And as I say, you know, the, there are lots of really fantastic books about Lyme out there, but some of them are pretty technical and you know, and, and as you probably know, you know, when you have Lyme brain and you can't read, you can't process information, your short term memory is shot. It, you know, even for me, it was tough slogging at some points. And I thought, you know, it, if I'm at times struggling with this, imagine what the average person is going through. So, so, you know, I'm, I'm very much a, um, you know, when life ha- hands you lemons make lemonade, um, although, you know, throw a bit of vodka in it, but, um, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, so I really tried to take a, a, a lousy situation and say, well, you know, how can I use my science background to help other people? Because this is just, it, it was such a shock to know that, you know, those of us in chronic Lyme have no support from our publicly funded healthcare system. And you really do have to just educate yourself, learn, and, and be a very vocal advocate for yourself. And I thought, well, I have the skill to do that because of my science background, but what about people who don't? And then the other part of it, so that that's why I wrote the book. And when I discussed it with um, Firefly Books, I said, I don't want to recreate what's already out there. I want a primer. I, I basically want to give people, what are the absolute fundamentals that you need to know to help yourself? And then for all the other details, you know, go to those other great books that are out there. But this is kind of, I wanted to write almost like a starting point, like a quick reference guide. And then the other part of that was, uh, you know, as, as many, if not most of us with Lyme disease and, and other tick-borne illnesses go through, um, it's other Lyme sufferers or, you know, those close to Lyme sufferers that become your biggest support and your biggest help. And, and I've had massive support from, you know, a lot of people. And, and for me, the book is kind of a way to pay it forward. Oh, that's amazing. I know this next question is the right question for you because you studied evolutionary ecology and population genetics. Um, I'm sort of going back to my university science classes, and I saw this section on the taxonomy of Borrelia. And I thought, wow, this is a great question for you because, you know, when I read through that, you speak about the fact that there's 52 different species of Borrelia, and then you also speak about strains and gen- genetic diversity. And I can see that you've also linked it to, you know, understanding why testing is not accurate yet for Lyme testing. So Exactly. And, and I think this is such an important part of the story and, and one that doesn't get you know, perhaps as much as attention as it should be, and especially with testing in, in Canada and probably the U.S. as well. But um, obviously, you know, I'm, I'm most familiar with our, our system here in Canada. But, um, yeah, you know, like if we're using tests um, to detect certain species, um, 
you know, are we are we missing things? And and we know that between, you know, the movement of migratory birds and, and and just human travel, you know, people traveling to, you know, to other countries and potentially getting Lyme there and then coming back home and testing negative because it was a different strain or different species of, uh, you know, of Lyme disease. You know, a lot of it obviously depends on the kind of test that you use. But, you know, we we test for, you know, basically one species and what one strain here and and, you know, I don't think science has the full understanding of the genetic diversity, at, either at the species level or the strain level, um, you know, for uh, Borrelia. And, um, you know, how do we develop the best tools to detect these infections when, you know, we're not even sure about the genetic diversity at there. And, and so thank goodness, you know, there's science happening that's, that's looking into this, but um, you know, there's, there's obviously still more for us to learn. Absolutely. Now, I've looked at your bibliography, which is just rich with peer-reviewed scientific articles. <laughs> so for those people who are really looking for the hard science on this, I highly recommend going there. Do you have any favorite peer-reviewed scientific articles that you referenced in your book? Ooh, that's a tough one. <laughs> <laughs> um, gosh, I, you know, without kind of like referring to like, you know, specific uh you know, sort of specific papers and names and dates and that sort of thing, because as you know, those of us with Lyme brain, you know, or short-term memory shot, right? But um, I, I think some of the papers that perhaps were the most important to me, uh, certainly there was a paper that was uh, a meta-analysis of the efficacy of the two-tier testing um, that showed that, you know, the two-tier testing that we use here in Canada, for example, um, you know, if you have Lyme disease, the probability that those tests, those two-tier tests will detect it is 54% on average. And that's based on a meta-analysis of, I can't remember if it was something like 17 different uh, peer-reviewed research papers. And, and I think, you know, it's science runs on consensus, consensus, right? We, we, you know, we come up with observations, we ask questions, we test them, we collect data, and, you know, we're constantly sort of revising our, our knowledge and our perspective. And, you know, I think when enough of a body of, of scientific peer-reviewed literature is accumulated that we can then do a meta-analysis, I think those are really important because it kind of get, gives us a, a sense of, well, what overall are we finding? And when you find that the tests that, you know, we're using to detect Lyme disease, you might, it, you know, it's almost equivalent to um, a coin toss, right? You know, part of it has to do with in which phase, you know, what stage do you test Lyme? Because the efficacy of those tests, you know, does vary sort of over the, the different phases. But, um, you know, I think it just sort of underpins and a really important message, which is that, you know, these, these, um, these antibody tests were never designed as diagnostic tests. They were surveillance tests. And so, exactly. you know, the fact that doctors rely on them far, far too much, you know, we should be relying on a clinical diagnosis and, and there's that 2012 bulletin from um, the um, uh, Public Health Agency of Canada or Health Canada that that is advice to doctors that says, you know, and this is back in 2012, that says, you know, the especially the, the first test, the ELISA, is really insensitive and don't rely on it. Use it as a as a, a support tool, but your your diagnosis should be clinical. And and yet, you know, far too many of us are experiencing the opposite where you know, I've never had a, a bullseye rash and I've been bitten a number of times. And I, and actually out of the number of times I've been bitten, I've only ever had one rash, which I thought was a spider bite because it was a solid red oval. And, uh, you know, and, and then I, I also recently read a paper, you know, that looked at the the incidence of that bullseye rash in, in folks and, and it was found to be about 9%. So when doctors in public health say, you know, look for the bullseye, um, had I known that a solid red rash was not necessarily a spider bite, I could have saved myself a whole lot of grief. 
Yeah, well, I, you bring up so many great points there. So I'm going to just uh, reinforce something we've talked about on our podcast before. Um, so for one thing, you are a board member at CanLime, and thank you so much for your service. We really appreciate it. Um, but CanLime is offering grants to physicians who do want to get more training in Lyme disease and other tick-borne illnesses. So we do have grants available to do the fundamentals course through the International Lyme and Associated Diseases Society. And we have that information on our Looking at Lyme website. Um, but it really is so important to understand how to do a clinical diagnosis. And Dr. Betty Maloney has talked about that on our podcast as well, and really just talks about the importance of you can't rule Lyme disease out with our current testing. Um, so it always has to stay on the differential diagnosis for patients. Absolutely. And I, I think that's such an important uh, message for our, our medical doctors, for our physicians to, uh, you know, to understand. And, and as we know, unfortunately, you know, doctors aren't receiving what I would consider adequate training in med school about how to, um, you know, how to diagnose and treat Lyme disease. So I, I think we really need to go down to, you know, sort of basics and say, well, what are we treating our, you know, teaching our, our doctors in training? And, you know, I, I think, you know, one of the biggest frustrations for me is, that, um, you know, the body of peer-reviewed science for Lyme and tick-borne diseases has, I mean, literally exploded in recent years. And yet the way that our medical, you know, profession in, in Canada, and I think in general in North America, treats Lyme diseases, they basically ignore all of that science. You know, we just look at the IDSA guidelines and they don't reflect the current peer-reviewed science. And, and so, you know, I think it's, we really need to force the issue to say, look, it's time to play catch up. It's time to um, you know, utilize the, you know, the current information so that we keep people safe because a lot of the information that doctors and public health will tell you, unfortunately lead to, um, a lack of a diagnosis, which means that that critical window for treatment right after a bite is missed. Absolutely. And, you know, I think it's all part of this advocating that you speak about in your book as well. And I think if people have good relationships with their doctors, you know, you can advocate for yourself and ask them to go do this training. The training doesn't take long. It's all offered virtually now um, because of, you know, COVID and everyone having to pivot. Um, but, you know, you can ask your doctor to go and get more training. There's nothing wrong with taking that approach as well as part of your advocating for yourself. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I think that's absolutely fantastic advice. And I, I think, you know, it, it's unfortunate that, you know, those of us with Lyme and especially chronic Lyme, which isn't actually recognized as a real disease, you know, by our, our medical profession in Canada, um, you know, sometimes it means that our relationship with our healthcare providers is adversarial. Um, I don't like that. And I don't think it's the most productive way to proceed. But unfortunately, sometimes that happens. Um, but having a great relationship, especially, you know, with your family physician, your GP is, is important. And, and I think, you know, in all due respect, I think we need to be willing to challenge them in, in a, you know, in a, a constructive and a respectful way, but to say, you know, I'm not so sure about this and I want you to do some more digging. You know, we're as patients, we're not just at a doctor's mercy. It really should be a collaboration. Right. And, and I, that's I personally think that's true of any medical care that we get. I'm not saying that I'm an expert and I'm certainly not a medical doctor, but, um, you know, if I hear something that just kind of doesn't sit right with me, it doesn't sound like common sense, I'm, I'm willing to ask questions about it. And I think we all should be. Definitely. And I mean, there's nothing wrong with getting another opinion. And, you know, in my case, and I think in your case, too, I ended up going to the States and 
you know, paying for somebody to care for me and give me another opinion. And it was such a relief to finally see a doctor that knew anything about Lyme disease. Um, Isn't that wild? It, it it's is. actually uh, amazing kind of that the sense of of relief and almost kind of validation that you feel because, you know, oh, so often you're totally. told, oh, it's all in your head or, you know, I, I end up going to a, a private clinic in, in Ontario. I was ready to go to the U.S., but was lucky enough to get into this other clinic and and, um, you know, what's great is that my, you know, I, I have a medical team that looks after me, but the, the medical doctor, the MD who, who leads that team and who takes care of me, you know, we have conversations uh, on the phone, you know, when I have appointments and things and I can ask him any question and I can, I can say to him, well, I'm not so sure about this, so explain it to me. Or, or I can say, well, you know, I also have this other symptom. And so, you know, I'm thinking maybe the Babesia hasn't gone away. And he says, okay, well, let's chat about it. And then, you know, and then it helps him do his job, right? Right. And you're engaged with curiosity instead of just being shut down. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And in Ontario, there is a new program that was just launched this year called TICMD, which is a virtual healthcare project or program. And, um, and so that's just launched as well. So it's nice that there's that opportunity for people in Ontario now too. I think that's fabulous. I think we need more of these kinds of tools to help people. And uh, um, yeah, I, I just, the, you know, every time I see a program like that, or as you say, like the doctor training program, I think those are huge positive steps forward. So quickly, I just want to go back to your book. You had a really great chapter on how to check for ticks, and you talked about specifically looking for ticks on your children and on your pets. Do you have any tips for our listeners? Uh, develop new habits. Do this daily. I mean, I, I basically do it from essentially the beginning of March until December. Um, you know, I live in eastern Ontario near, near Westport, so between Ottawa and Kingston, and I live in a hot spot. Um, you know, there's an area not too far from me where – some sampling was done um, and it was by University of Guelph and they found that 80% of the ticks sampled were Lyme positive. So, and, and my backyard for the past six years has been just crawling with ticks and uh, I've had to, um, you know, sort of tweak my lifestyle and uh, adopt new habits. I think one thing that's really important is, you know, I, for the friends who have kind of watched me go through this Lyme journey and, and frankly seem, have seen me suffer dearly, um, some of them have said, there's no way I'm going outside again. And my response to them is, that's not helpful. You know, we know that there are physical and mental health benefits of spending time in nature. And, you know, and, and I'm a biologist and an environmental educator. And, and my entire goal is to connect people to nature and to inspire them to care about it and protect it. And, and if we're, if we feel chased indoors by ticks, that's not going to help. So, so my alternative, you know, I'm very solutions oriented. And, and so I say to folks, well, how about just adopting some, some simple things that we can do. So, you know, spraying yourself with, um, you know, with a, uh, a repellent. And so, you know, I'm a, 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 you know, sort of heavy user of a keratin, you know, we know that DEET's not very effective against ticks. It doesn't last that long. And, and the keratin, you know, lasts longer, you know, up to 12 hours, it's safer, you know, it doesn't dissolve, uh, you know, the, the strap on your plastic strap on your binoculars. Um, you know, I'm constantly in my backyard, you know, I live in beautiful Canadian chilled country. And so I'm outdoors, you know, every day. And as soon as I come in, I do a tick check. And then I, I do a tick check again at bedtime, just in case I missed anything when I came in. And then I tell people, I actually do a tick check in the morning. And then I go, well, why? You were asleep. You weren't outside. And, and my kind of philosophy or my thinking there is, you know, some of these, especially nymph 
ticks, right? The nymphal stage can be super tiny, you know, the size of a, a freckle or a poppy seed. So they're easy to miss. And so if you missed it on your tick check at night, if you check in the morning, you, you know, you're, you may actually, you know, especially if that tick's been feeding on you, it's going to be larger. And so you're more likely to detect it. The other thing too, is that if you, you're like me and you have pets that sleep with you, well, you know, if a tick comes in on a pet and then your pet sleeps with you and then overnight the tick decides to abandon ship and crawl onto you, um, you know, you wouldn't have caught it the night before, but you sure will in the morning. Exactly. What do you hope readers will come away with after reading your book, Lime, Ticks, and You? Uh, I think kind of three main things. One is that I hope they just get the kind of the basic science of Lyme disease and tick-borne illnesses um, so that they know how to protect themselves, but also that they know how to advocate for themselves. Because as we know, you know, our medical system is not particularly friendly towards those of us, especially with uh, chronic Lyme. And so you absolutely need to know the basics of Lyme to advocate for yourself. Um, you know, I want people to, uh, to adopt these measures, to protect themselves from tick bites, to try to minimize it so that they can get outside and, and enjoy them. Um, you know, I want to make them aware of kind of like just sort of the truth of Lyme, you know, not the stuff that unfortunately that we're, we're getting from public health and from our doctors. And I don't say that with any, you know, malicious intent. It's just that, you know, the information that they're often sharing is so outdated. And, and, you know, so I really did strive to put, you know, the most recent, uh, science in this book so that people can understand it and, and, um, you know, have information in there about, you know, how to get help, um, how to get a diagnosis, you know, where to turn to. And I think the other part of it, although it's not a huge focus of the book, part of the reason why I started off with my own personal story is I do want people to understand that even though we live in a country with a universal healthcare system, we don't. And that those of us with chronic Lyme are, are sadly, you know, actively discriminated against in terms of treatment. I mean, I've spent close to $30,000 out of pocket in under two years uh, for diagnosis and treatment. And I've just basically killed my retirement, you know, and, and um, it's, uh, it, it's frustrating. And, and I think, uh, as I say, you know, I, I don't sort of share any of that with any malicious intent. It's just that it is the truth. And I think people need to know about it because I think we need, you know, there's, there's a lot of wonderful people who have been advocating for Lyme patients for many years and have made great inroads. But I think it's time now that the general public understand what's going on and to help us advocate for change in a positive and collaborative way. Oh, that's so great. Well, I want to just thank you so much for your time and your expertise. And mostly thank you for doing all the research and putting it into this fabulous book. We will post a link on our website and uh, and people can go there to learn more and get the scientific background. And I just think the more perspectives we have trying to solve this problem, uh, the quicker we get to a solution. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And I, and I think, you know, we really need to work collaboratively with the medical community and the research community to move things forward. And I'm, I'm hopeful that we will get there. I mean, it's been a hard slog so far, but, uh, you know, I, I really hope that, um, you know, we can continue to raise more awareness about Lyme disease and, and other tick-borne illnesses. It's not just Lyme, right? You know, sadly, a lot of us know that, uh, um, you know, the impacts of having other tick-borne illnesses that the ticks around me carry, such as, you know, Babesium bartonella and those sorts of things. So, you know, I, I really hope that we can educate the public, but also, you know, really get them on board to help us to advocate with our, our medical uh, profession in Canada so that we, we move forward in a positive way. Great advice. Well, we will get there. We'll keep pushing forward. You bet. <laughs> Thank you for your time. Thanks so much, Sarah. It's great to meet you. 
I was fascinated to hear that the University of Guelph has been doing surveillance in eastern Ontario and the majority of ticks they sampled tested positive for Lyme. With leadership, medical collaboration, and research from scientists like Dr. Shelley Ball, we are moving forward to a solution. This is our final podcast for season two. Have a fabulous summer playing outside, and just remember, stay safe.